chapter 8. didn't make it, so we're still in Luke chapter 8. And this time, we're going to look at the life of a middle school-aged girl, okay? And these stories are actually connected. They happen simultaneously. So I wanted to read them all together for you, old school style. I don't want you to put it up on the screen or anything. I just want you to hear this as a complete story. So I'm going to read over what I preached on last week, and then we'll get to the story in the middle of it about this little girl. It is so great, okay? Now when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come into his house, because his only daughter, his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. As Jesus was on the way, the crowds almost crushed him. People were bumping into him. And a woman who was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. You can listen to this sermon online, okay? Who touched me, Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, people are crowding all around you. Who didn't touch you? But Jesus said, Someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me, or virtue. Then the woman, seeing that she was busted, basically, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her daughter, what a great thing to hear, your faith has healed you, go in peace. And I loved preaching about this, so please do listen to that message. While Jesus was still speaking, though, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler, and said this, your daughter is dead, don't bother the teacher anymore. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, be not afraid, just believe or just trust and she will be healed. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go into the room with him except Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, stop crying, Jesus said. She is not dead, she's asleep. And they laughed at him. Never a good idea, okay, to laugh at God. Just saying, just check that off, okay? But he took her by the hand and said, my child, get up, or in Hebrew, Talitha Koumi. Her spirit returned at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat, and her parents were astonished. We'll just end it right there. What an amazing story. I just love this story. Now, this woman with a chronic menstrual disorder that I talked about last week, sadly, she was an outcast in her community because of her condition. The little girl was not. She was actually quite well-known because her dad was a big deal in town. He was the ruler or the leader of the local synagogue. The older woman had suffered for 12 years with her condition. The young girl, we're told, is 12 years old. So when your grandpa says, I've got ulcers as old as you, you know, that's what was going on here, all right? Now, it's significant that the number 12 is mentioned in both of their lives. Numbers are a big deal in the Bible. And all the math teachers rejoiced, okay? Numbers are a big deal. Mark puts it in there for a reason, because 12 is the number of the tribes of Israel. It represented all of the people. 12 is also the number of Jesus' inner group of disciples and followers. So he makes sure, you, he knows, he makes sure that we know about the 12s in their life, and it's a way for him to say, following Jesus. Being in God's family is for everybody. 
even for social outcasts like this old woman and for sick little girls. It's so great. These two are forever linked because of their story, and we looked at the woman's story last week, but today we're going to look at the young girl, um, specifically her healing, the waiting, and the wonder in her life. First, I want to look at the healing. The little girl's healing that she experienced was amazing on, for several reasons, but first of all, because she was dead. First of all, by the time Jesus got there, he got sidetracked. By the time he got there, sadly, the little girl had passed away. She wasn't mostly dead, like in Princess Bride with Wesley, okay? She was all the way dead, so this is not a resuscitation. This is a resurrection. This is a miracle on a grand scale. But when you think about it, it was also a little bit of a bummer because this little girl got pulled back out of paradise back into ancient Israel. That's not a great thing in her mind, probably, okay? That's like being on a really long flight overseas, and you magically get bumped up to first class. They go, hey, you want to get upgraded? Sure, okay. And you're sitting in first class with the towels and the champagne and everything, and suddenly the flight attendant says, I'm sorry, there's been a mistake. And, and they usher you back to your seat and coach in the middle aisle between the two sweaty sumo wrestlers, okay? That's what was going on here. She probably was happy in one regard to be reunited with her family and friends, but sad in another regard, especially when it dawned on her, oh crap, I have to die again. I died once, I was fine with it because I'd finished it, now I got drugged back to life and I have to die again. <laughs> now, Jesus had raised other people from the dead and it's always amazing, but this story is just so sweet. You see, first of all, he goes into her room with just a few friends and her family, and he takes her by the hand. And, and let's stop there. Last week, remember I told you this ancient culture had a lot of rules about what defiled people, what made them clean and, and unclean and impure and pure, all these kind of rules. And one of the things that defiled you, that made you ceremonially impure, was touching a dead person. But Jesus does it anyway. And he demonstrates in that moment, I care way more about people than I do about any religious rules. He was willing to go to taboo places and do taboo things in order to love and heal people. And we did have one other announcement, and it has to do with this. We're actually doing another upper room. It's these small group gatherings where we come together and you can ask any of your questions or you can bring your doubts and fears and frustrations you can ask me about the Bible, the church, my life, anything, and we all wrestle with these questions together and our faith grows. But we're not going to do it at the church like normal. We're doing it at Old Nick's Bar down the road. Seriously, it's going to be so awesome. Okay, and we've invited some of the patrons and workers to join us. We don't know if they will, but we invited them. Well, why am I going to such a taboo-type place? Because there's not a lot of other churches meeting there. Okay. <laughs> Because Jesus, that's why. But back to the story. Jesus takes this little girl by the hand and, she, and he says to her in Hebrew, Talitha koam. And that is so significant. Talitha, that word Talitha in Hebrew, is a term of endearment. It's something a parent would say to a small child. Something akin to us saying sweetie or honey to our small kids. Okay? And koam means arise. But it doesn't mean arise in the resurrection sense, come back to life. It simply means, wake up. So when he says in Hebrew to her, Talitha Koam, it'd be like us saying to our small child on a Monday morning on the last week of school, honey, 
it's time to wake up. What he's doing is he's saying to all of us, listen, if I have you by the hand, death is nothing more than just sleep for you. It's something I can wake you up from. Oh, such a powerful moment in the scriptures. You know, in the 50 days after Easter, um, the historical churches named those 50 days Eastertide. It's one of my favorite words, Eastertide. It just conjures in my mind this vision of a football game where the team I'm rooting for and you is, is falling way behind. You Beaver fans can relate to this, okay? So your team is falling way behind, and then all of a sudden a great play is made, and the momentum starts to switch, and people will even say, man, I can feel the tide begin to turn, and then your team comes back and wins a victory. It's amazing, okay? When Jesus defeated death in this little girl's life, it turned the tide. Can you imagine the wave of joy that swept through this village? Not just because they got a friend and loved one back and a family member back, but because they would have walked home that night thinking, whoa, Jesus is something. Jesus is really a big deal. He even defeated death. Now he's letting me know that death isn't a period in my life. It's just a comet. It's something I can be woken up from. That's pretty great. That's a turning of the tide. I want to put up on the screen a, a quote I've used several times before because it's my favorite. And I'll just read this for you. Behind everything you see and experience in life, there has been a mysterious force wanting you to know there's no reason to be afraid ever. And I'm just going to leave that up there for a while. I tend to be a freaker-outer. I don't know if you're like that. I freak out about a lot of things including death. I had to go to the doctors this week, and every time I go to the doctor, I just, I'm convinced I have every known disease known to humankind. I might be a little bit of a hypochondriac, okay? So there might be a little bit of an issue there. I just hate the doctor's office, and I freak out. When I freak out about anything, but especially death, I quote that to myself, because I believe the mysterious force that that author is talking about is Jesus for us. And he's this force working behind the scenes in our life going, I've got you. There's no reason to be afraid of anything ever. I love you that much. I also think it's a good idea to think of the words that Jesus spoke. Talitha Cohen. It's time to get up. There's just something about that phrase. You'll feel the tide begin to turn and fear start to lose in your life. There was another healing that took place here, not just a little girl. And it actually is not noticed by a bunch of people. I, I've read the story a million times, and I didn't notice it until this week. But the other healing that took place was that of Jairus. You see, his daughter got healed from death. He got healed by death. Now I'm going to have to explain that one a little bit to you. There's an old saying that goes like this. There are two types of death in life. The first is when your last breath leaves your body. That's death number one. Death number two is when the last person that ever knew you speaks your name on earth for the last time. Oh, okay, that's death number two. That's sad. All right? I believe there's a third death that actually isn't sad, and that's this, the death of our false identities, and that's the death that heals. See, we have to ask our question, what is my identity? How's my, what is my identity found in? Who am I, really? Is my identity found in labels? Young, old, man, woman, gay, straight, Republican, Democrat? Is that what I am? 
is my identity found in what I do? Am I just a pastor or a teacher or a mill worker? Like on Jeopardy, they always introduce the people, a school teacher from Decatur, Illinois. And is that their identity, really? Okay. Or perhaps our identities are discovered by listening to what others say about us. I hope not, because some people say really nice things about me. I thought, oh yeah, that's who I am. And other people use phrases that rhyme with glass bowl, okay? And I'm thinking, that's not what I want to be. That's not what I want to encompass my identity, okay? Or maybe it's just our recent achievements. Are we just the sum of our recent achievements? Some of you are going to graduate from college or high school soon. The overlords are finally going to give you the certificate, okay? But is that who you are? Your core is just a graduate? No, okay? Jairus, no doubt, found his identity in what he did. He was the ruler of the synagogue, and it's mentioned twice in just a few verses. He was a guy with tremendous power, and he was proud and popular, And he was used to calling the shots, but then suddenly all of that came crashing down and he comes and he falls at Jesus' feet and he begs. He begs and it's such a great scene. The Bible's full of scenes like this where people's lives are broken into a million pieces because that's where God does some of his best work. He likes puzzles like that, okay? And that's where Jairus is at. And boom, in that moment of what we would consider weakness, he experiences the death that heals. Don't you see? He finally discovered that all of his wealth and power and status were of no real use, and they didn't define him. He left that moment of weakness knowing who he was. I am a person that needs God. I can't heal my daughter on my own. I am a person that is loved by God. Look at what Jesus is doing for me. I am a person that loves. I really love my daughter. I really love my family. And I am a person that's part of something bigger than myself. Look at all these other people on this journey with me. Wow. Our identity is made up of more than that, but those four truths are a great place to start. They're like the rue that our, the gumbo of our identity is built upon. So if you're freaking out, because every once in a while we'll go through these times of, of flatulence, of consciousness, I call it a brain fart, and we'll forget who we really are. And in those confusing times, it's great to repeat those things to yourself. Who am I? I am a person that needs God. I can't make it on my own. I am a person that is loved by God. I am a person who's called to love. And I am a person that's part of something bigger than myself. I'm a part of a faith community. Super helpful to repeat those things. All right? Now let's move to the waiting. The late Tom Petty, that's sad to say. He died just not even a year ago had a song I really liked, and he said, the waiting is the hardest part. People who know me well um, realize that the waiting definitely is the hardest part. Patience isn't my strongest thing, okay? I just don't like to go slow. I don't like to drive slow, walk slow, talk slow. I don't like to do anything slow. I like expediency, zoom, zoom. With my family, we go out to family dinners occasionally together, and when I get home, This is often the situation. You can ask my wife if you don't believe me. Oftentimes, I'll pull up into the driveway and I'll be out of the car in the house with the door shut before they've got out of the car. That is either incredibly rude or fairly impressive, whichever way you want to look at it, okay? (laughs) Whichever view you take is fine with me, all right? I'm just not good at waiting, so I can relate to Jairus in this story. I mean, the disciple Mark's 
telling of the story, he adds a detail that Luke forgets or just leaves out. And he says that when Jairus fell before Jesus, he said, Jesus, my daughter is as good as dead. Come and heal her. And in that language, there's a sense of urgency. Jairus didn't want Jesus to dawdle around. He didn't want to have his daughter die. So when Jesus gets sidetracked to heal the woman with the issue of bleeding, it must have been driving Jairus crazy. He must have been thinking, come on, Jesus. Her condition isn't life-threatening. It isn't. You can loop back and help her. Go help my daughter first. But because Jesus got sidetracked, the little girl died. Jairus' worst nightmare came true. There was this crazy roller coaster of emotions. I mean, this whole crowd, including, including Jairus, had just heard Jesus say to a healed woman, go in peace. What a crazy high that is. And then the next thing the crowd hears is a servant of Jairus coming up to Jairus and saying, your daughter just died. From a crazy high to a pitiful, agonizing low. That's how life goes, though, doesn't it? Life can go from a high to a low in an instant, in the blink of an eye, in a phone call, in a sentence. And when you're the person experiencing the lows, it's easy to get mad and scream, damn it, life is not fair. And some of you have felt like that. I was reading recently of a neighborhood. There's two houses side by side. And in one house, the people bought a lottery ticket and they won $600,000. And in, in the same time period, the house next door, their four-year-old daughter, it was discovered that she had a rare genetic disease and she was going to pass away in just months. That's not fair. When you're on the high, great. But when you're on the low, it's not fair and you're angry. It's also easy in these times to get angry directly at Jesus. I'm sure that Jairus was there. I'm sure he wanted to look at Jesus and say, Great job, Jesus. Good job. Because of you dawdling around, my daughter died. If you'd have got here sooner, she wouldn't have died. I'm going to hammer you on Yelp for being so slow. I'm sure that's what he wanted to say. We've all been there, right? We've probably been in situations where you go, Jesus, I know you're with me now, but if you'd have got here sooner, if I'd been aware of you sooner, my marriage wouldn't have imploded. Thanks for the healing I've received, but come on, couldn't you have got here quicker? Or Jesus, if you'd arrived on the scene of my life sooner, my business wouldn't have failed. Thanks for the wisdom I've got because of that situation, but I'd have preferred not learning that hard lesson. Why are you taking so long? Jesus seems to be so slow, and we have to wait. And while the waiting is the hardest part, it's also a necessary part. Tom Petty left that out of his song that... that Luke didn't leave it out of his story. Because Jairus waited, he got way more than he'd hoped for. Instead of just a fever being healed, he got a hallelujah moment. Instead of a resuscitation, he got a resurrection. It seemed to Jairus Jesus was being slow, but that's because Jairus didn't know all the facts. There's going to be times when you pray for things, and it seems like Jesus is operating at a snail's pace. If he's even hearing your prayers at all, Keep praying. Keep at it. There's a lot you don't know. There's a lot we probably can't even know. But if we wait, we'll get more than we even hope for, either in this life or the next. And that begs the question, well, why should we trust Jesus that much? That is such a great question, and let me answer that by telling you a story. I go to a restaurant in town 
quite often, usually about once a week, to get a fusion burrito. In fact, Pete and I go quite often to this place, and we love it. And one of the reasons I love it, the food's good, but one of the reasons I love it is because <laughs> this lady works there. She's actually the mother of the owner, and she works the counter there. And she's not a great, like, waitress and stuff, but she's a great host. Every time I go there, I'm 54 years old, and every time I go there, she calls me honey. Every time. Last week I went there, or actually the week before, and she called me honey and sweetie in the same sentence. Oh, honey, good to see you. Sweetie, what can I get for you? Nothing. I love you. <laughs> That's what I'm thinking. I go, it is so great, especially when you're having a bad week, just to be called honey by some older woman. It's just glorious, okay? I tip her extravagantly because she calls me honey. It's so wonderful. How can we possibly trust Jesus enough to wait for him when it seems like he's going too slow if he's even moving at all? The answer is found back in that original two words, Talitha Cohen, Talitha, honey. He calls us honey. God loves us that fiercely. We're that dear to his heart. Jesus will rarely answer our questions about why things are unfolding in our, in our lives the way they are and at the speed they are. But that's okay, because I believe that he's going to speak the same words to us that he, did, that he did to Jairus. And the words are this, be not afraid, trust in me. And we can get there. We can get to that place of trust, because he calls us honey. That's how. I know he loves me that fiercely. That's how I can trust him that much. Last thing I want to look at is the wonder. In verse 36, it says the little girl's parents were astonished. And that is something, that word we shouldn't move right past. I think this simple statement is a model for how all of us should live our lives. We should live our lives in constant awe and wonder. We may never witness anything as amazing as a resurrection, but we have wonders and astonishing things all around us in our lives but we're so familiar with them, we can become blinded to them. We become even bored with them. I mean, think about it. Most of us have a cell phone. I grew up in an age where the, the phones were rotary dials and they were connected by a cord that you could walk down the hallway to, okay? And, and everything was slow. We can talk into a device. It hears our voice somehow, and rec this is very unscientific -y, okay? And it recognizes our voice and shoots our voice up into space and then across the country to our friends, and it comes out of their device sounding exactly like us. I don't get that. Oh, my <laughs> science and math friend is freaking out here. I don't know exactly if that's how cell phones work, but they're amazing. Let's just stay right there, okay? We'll just end the argument right there, okay? Think about our bodies. Our bodies can heal themselves. We don't get a cut and just go... I'm going to bleed for the rest of my life. We don't. Our bodies can heal themselves. Every scar you have on your body is testament to a miracle. It's a miracle that our bodies heal. It's a miracle that our skin lets moisture out in sweat, but it doesn't let it in or else we'd drown when we took a shower. That is amazing. I'm easily amazed, and that's probably all wrong too, but I am easily amazed. This fact, though, blows my mind. There is a star so big in the universe, if it was where our sun is, we would be inside of it. 
just think about that for a little while, okay? And then another thing that's amazing. I'm just going to list amazing things to you for a little bit, okay? Two words for you. Micro pigs. Google it. You're welcome. It is going to make your day. There. Fast. Not miniature pigs. Miniature pigs. Micro pigs. Coolest. I want one so bad, okay? Christmas list. Micro pigs. And then think of our planet itself. Think of Earth. We are on a rock that's hurtling through space at thousands of miles an hour, making its way around a ball of gas. We should be so grateful every day that we wake up that the Earth didn't just hurtle off into space so we'd freeze or veer too close to the sun so we'd melt. Because melting stuff's fun, but it's not fun when it's you that's doing the melting, okay? You're actually melting. So many people today describe themselves and they say this phrase. In fact, some of your friends have probably said this. Well, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. Right? Have you ever heard that? I hear that all the time as a pastor. Well, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. That's just a hip way to say, I believe in God. I just don't want anything to do with the church. I totally get that. I really do. And I think it's because, by and large, especially for the last 10 years, I think the church has done a really poor job of promoting awe and wonder. So we haven't drawn people to church because... It's not wonderful. I think that's why the psalmist says in 119, Psalm 119 um, says this, I will meditate on your wonders, O Lord. He's saying, I'm going to think about them. I'm going to notice them. I'm going to be awake to them. I'm going to marinate in your wonders. I'm not going to take them for granted. And then I want to quote another really, really great theologian, okay? This is Bob Dylan from All Along the Watchtower. Businessmen, they drink my wine. Plowmen dig my earth. None of them along the line know what any of it's worth. God has filled the world with the wonderful and the astonishing. And I think God is calling us all back to awe and wonder. I believe He wants us to wake up and be aware of the wonder that is in our lives, in our world, and in Him and in each other so that we stop walking sightless amongst miracles through our day. I want to put up a motto here. I would love you to live your life by this motto. I think it's the greatest motto. Live better, help often, wonder more. Isn't that great? It's from a group of atheists in England, but other than that, I think we just need to redeem it. Actually, I thought, I don't care. It's great. Live better, help often, and wonder more. I think that's what God is calling us. Let me pray for us.